0: please do be seated. And again, can I add my welcome uh, to that that Callum brought, particularly if you're a visitor here. Uh, We know at this time of the year, many of our own folks go away for holidays and breaks, and many come and join us uh, here at Charlotte Chapel. So if you're visiting us, a particular welcome to you. Hope you feel at home. We've been working our way through Uh, In this occasional series that we have in the summer months, the Psalms. Last week we were looking at Psalm 13. This morning we are looking at Psalm 14. And one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible is before us this morning. We've read it, we've sung it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's a verse that gets rolled out and quoted every time an atheist author makes some comment or wades into some controversy. So when someone like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Polly Toynbee hits the news, the knee-jerk reaction of some Christians is to immediately call them fools, as if that's the end of the argument. The trouble is, for one thing, such a response is ungracious, and secondly, it's not true. These people are not fools in the way that the expression is used here in this psalm. They're intelligent. They are deep-thinking people who are trying to engage with the philosophical issues raised by those of us who happily and gratefully declare that there is one God who gloriously reigns and rules. Now, of course, for those who operate at that level, that philosophical level, it seems that Christian apologists are winning the argument. There are an increasing number of academics who are defecting from atheism to belief in God, and a decreasing number of atheists who are ready to engage with their Christian peers about such matters. Many now refuse to debate with Christian apologists, such as William Lane Craig. And those who have entered into such debates have not fared well at all. Just search out some of the Dawkins versus John Lennox debates on Google. And you'll see what I mean. But the fools we're looking at in Psalm 14 are not philosophers. They're not theoretical atheists. But rather they're practical atheists. They're people who live as if there's no God. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They may not have fully thought out their reasons, but instinctively they live and act as if God didn't exist. It's just never entered their minds. They structure their lives, they structure their behavior around a lifestyle in which God is absent. They don't see that they are accountable to him in any ways, and the Bible calls them fools. So let's see what the Bible has to say about them. Now this uh, psalm breaks into four stanzas. We're going to look at each. The first stanza I've called this, the identification of a foolish life. The identification of a foolish life. It is there in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. At the heart of his foolishness is the belief that there is no one to whom the fool is ultimately accountable. You see, the fool has no true moral code to guide him. And although they may think that there is, once they've removed God from the picture, the code they live by is determined by their own changing feelings. There's no longer any objective standard. You see, when you become the rule setter and judge yourself, then the door has been opened for whatever behavior you think is acceptable. I think this is seen most clearly in the life of probably the most famous and influential atheist of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell, someone who's profoundly affected some of the atheists I've already mentioned. Uh, And and Russell said this. This is one of the things he said. The peculiar importance attached at present to adultery is quite irrational. Moral rules ought not to be such as to make instinctive happiness impossible. See, because basically he wanted to have sex whenever and with whoever he wanted. And indeed, when you read his life, he, he did that. And he therefore indicated that his atheism was constructed with this purpose in mind. There is no God, so the rules you set suit yourself. That was the case for Russell. He also said this, The only thing that I feel strongly worthwhile would be to murder as many people as possible so as to diminish the amount of consciousness in the world. And he said that. You know, so you know, if there is no standard, then it doesn't matter. I think this is a good idea. Why don't we do this? He, for example, was alarmed about the higher fertility of non-white women. And he demanded that the Asian and black birth rate be dra- uh, dramatically curtailed. Otherwise, he felt his own ethnicity, the whites, would be overwhelmed, resulting in chaos, he said, and disaster. And along with Darwin and others, he strongly favored eugenics, killing off the sick, killing off the elderly, killing off minority groups so that his own race may flourish. You see, it's what you do. It's the natural progression. When you say there is no God and the standards you live by are made up by yourself, then this is what emerges. He said, if a black death could be spread throughout the world once in every generation, survivors would be free to procreate freely without making the world too full. See, the psalmist was right. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. It is the identification of a foolish life. But when we move to the second stanza, verses 2 to 3, we come to the implication of a godly gaze. The implication of a godly gaze. Let me read verses 2 to 3 to you. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see what's happening here? The psalmist now lifts our viewpoint higher. Having pictured people denying that they're accountable to God and scurrying around in their vile and self centered ways, he pictures God above all his creation, gazing down past the billions of galaxies, each with their billions of planets, and searching this single planet Earth. And the surprise for each one of us here is that we discover we're included in this category of God ignoring fools. You see, this is what God sees. It's there in verse 3. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. (laughs) We weren't expecting that. Because we know we're, we're decent people. We come to church. We're kind to others. We treat our family well, we give money to charity, we look after our mates, and so on, and so on. We're not corrupt. You know, this is hardly affirmative teaching. This isn't the positive stuff that we want to hear. This won't get many likes on our Facebook or Instagram accounts. But this is exactly the argument that the Apostle Paul develops when he writes to the church at Rome. We heard something of that earlier. Let me again just read this to you. It will also uh, be on screen. Romans 1, 18 to 23. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... Made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And so uh, Paul is very much following the same argument that we've come across in Psalm 14. And then he continues it. Uh, let me pick it up in Romans 3, verses 9 to 18. He says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, as it is written. And now he quotes a whole number of Old Testament scriptures. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And now he quotes from Psalm 14, the psalm we're looking at. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. My friends, can I just say, what you're hearing, this is no quirky, weird, repressive, straight-laced Christian theology. This is what the Bible teaches throughout. This is orthodox Christianity. You see, it reveals that our default setting is to reject God. It's to go our own way. It's to do our own thing. The Bible exposes that even our best behavior falls far short of the infinite holiness and perfection of God. So before we sit back, congratulating ourselves that we're not like these practical atheists with all their corruptions, We need to come face to face with the truth that actually we're just like them. We live life as if God didn't exist, that we're at the center of our own universe, that our opinion is what matters above all. As Paul summarizes just a few verses later in Romans chapter 3, chapter 3 verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the psalmist doesn't leave it there. Having exposed the fact that we're all under the judgment of God, he goes on to describe what God-rejecting behavior looks like in the third stanza. And I've called it the inclination of a godless heart. The inclination of a godless heart. Let me read that stanza to you, verses 4 to 6. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Do you know, as I was uh, preparing this message, I was reading an article by a Christian apologist. I've already mentioned his name, William Lane Craig. And in that article, he outlined the three major problems he saw that there is with a worldview that ignores God. And I suddenly actually realized, as I was looking at those three problems, that actually each of them were identified by this psalmist, by David, 3,000 years ago. You see, first of all, there is the problem when you come to talk about the value of life. There is the value of life. For if there is no God, then human life has no intrinsic value. We're just a collection of selfish genes fighting for domination. It's survival of the fittest. And when you work that through, you end up with men like Joseph Mengele, who was working out of Auschwitz 80 years ago, conducting horrendous experiments, so horrendous, the stuff I've been reading, I can't tell you publicly, but horrendous experiments on pregnant women, and babies, and Jews. And the disabled, and travelers, and other minority groups. And he did that without the slightest moral hesitation. For once you take a creator God out of the picture, and you see everyone else as a chance collection of genetic material, then anything goes. And what does the psalmist say? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. You see, the psalmist is saying, to these people, life is cheap. All that really matters is me. And they can treat others as if it was as meaningless as eating a sandwich. There is the value of life. The second problem that William Lane Craig identified was the meaning of life. So there is the meaning of life. You see, if God doesn't exist, then life is random. It's meaningless. But we can't live like that. In order to be happy, we have to pretend that life has meaning. But this, of course, is entirely unsatisfactory. It's hypocritical. It's inconsistent. And in fact, even the atheist philosophers see this. They have to try and construct an alternative universe to live in, even though they know it has no intellectual substance. And for the vast majority today in our land, who live as though God is absent, there is a necessary, there is a deliberate effort to find meaning in the things of life. Work, power, sex, family, possessions. But the trouble is, these things don't give meaning to my life. These things don't answer the question, why am I here? These things can fail, these things can change, these things can disappoint. And ultimately, these things, these substitutes can't deal with the universal problem of death. And when God-ignorers meets the God-adorers, then there is a massive, uncomfortable problem. You see, the contrast then becomes overwhelming. People leading meaningless lives encounter people who live in the light and joy of serving the death-defeating God. Verse 5, but there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. And maybe that's how it seems and feels for you this morning amongst the company of this people, most of whom here are delighting in the life-transforming meaning-delivering, death-defeating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, maybe it's, it's weird, isn't it? It's uncomfortable. Maybe it even fills you with dread as you see what they've got and you haven't. And so often we discover that the most powerful apologetic for the Christian faith is not clever philosophical answers, although they're certainly not to be despised, but Christians living out their transformed lives together in worship and in love and in praise. There is the meaning of life. And then the third problem that Lane Craig identified is the purpose of life. There's the purpose of life. You know, the atheist and Nobel Prize winning physicist Steve Weinberg wrote this. The more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. The effort to understand the universe is one of the very few things that lifts human life a little above the level of farce and gives it some of the grace of tragedy. You see, Weinberg argues that there's no purpose to life or anything. And if there's no objective purpose to life, then nothing of what we do can have any significance. However important or dear it may seem to us, it's no more significant than shuffling deck chairs on the sinking Titanic. And yet the psalmist shows that while God-ignorers may oppress people who they see having no value, they can't stop them from finding their hope and their purpose in the living God. This is what verse 6 is about. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. You see, God's people find their purpose in serving the living God. He's the one they go to. He's the one they rely upon. He's the one who meets them in their deepest need. Let me just ask you. Where do you go when your plans don't work out? Where do you find refuge? Where do you find purpose? Let me close by pointing you to the fourth stanza that I've called the invitation to a divine rescue. The invitation to a divine rescue. It's there, verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. You see, it would seem to us that the psalmist is living through a time when God ignorers were dominating the scene and they were oppressing God's people. So what does he do? Does he give up on his faith? Does he keep his just keep your head down? Does he pass, passively accept the situation? No. His hope and confidence is in the promises of the living, promise-keeping God. He knows that God had promised to send. A rescuer that God had promised to send a deliverer. He knows that God had promised to raise up such a Messiah from amongst uh, his own people. And so he rejoices in the salvation plan. And he encourages God's people to do the same. You see, confident of God's faithfulness. And sure enough, when Paul continues the story as it were, Later there in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5, he writes, But when the time, set time, had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption into sonship. See, that promised rescuer is Jesus, the perfect fulfillment of all the pictures and promises that had been made down through the centuries. God stepping down into our time and place to rescue for himself rebel failures like us. And there on a cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, God incarnate took upon himself our corruption and our sin and our separation and our guilt and our shame. For Jesus there on that cross defeated death and he offers life and forgiveness and purpose and meaning to all who will follow him as their Savior and Lord. And all across the globe, as we've had a little taste of even this morning, millions upon millions, have found new life in him. Transforming our lives, opening our eyes, humbling our egos. So what will it be? There is no God? Or accepting with delight his gracious invitation to trust him? What will it be? Let's pray. Father, we're very conscious that as we look at this psalm, that it speaks so much into the way that millions upon millions upon millions of people uh, in our country and beyond live lives. Keeping God absent but not thinking through the implications. And we thank you for the glorious good news, sovereign God, that you do reign and rule, and that there is a salvation plan. And thank you that the name of the Savior is Jesus, and thank you that he came to be our sin bearer. Thank you that he died on Calvary's cross. Thank you that he rose again, defeating death. Three days later, thank you that he offers life to all who will come in repentance and faith. And thank you that so many of us here this morning have had our lives turned around as we've put our trust in you. And thank you it makes all the difference. Thank you that we get to know you, the living, gracious God. Thank you that to serve you and give our lives in your service is the greatest and most glorious thing we could possibly hope. Father, have mercy upon us, we pray. And grant that there will be those even here in this congregation this morning who will turn in repentance and faith to such a wonderful Savior, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. We're going to sing a song as we close. It has that well-known line, man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's stand and sing together.